Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined this week by David Yaffe Bellany, who is a writer for Bloomberg and the author of a recent piece, uh, which I know Courtney and I very much enjoyed, called The Missed Business Opportunity That Is Pro Tennis, uh, which is a deep dive into a lot of the dysfunction. A lot of it's not new, a lot of it's long lasting, but a lot of the lasting dysfunction in tennis and particularly how it's rankled, I think, the men's ranks of the sports in the ATP in recent months and years. Uh, David, thank you for being on the show and thank you for writing this this piece. Thanks for having me. How did, what was the origin of this piece? How did you get on this on this topic? Sure, so I'm, I'm not actually a sports writer. My my day yeah. job is actually covering federal courts in Washington, which uh, you know is a beat that probably couldn't be further from the uh, dysfunction in the ATP. But um, yeah. I'm a long time yeah. tennis fan. So, you know, I was aware of all these issues and I'm also, as a reporter, um, interested in the dynamics of different types of workplaces. I've written about how trainers at the Equinox gyms, you know, sleep on the floor to try to, you know, squeeze in extra shifts and make a livable wage and, you know, about uh, labor tensions at Trader Joe's. And so I was interested in taking that kind of workplace lens to the world of tennis and the uh, emergence of the PTPA seemed like a good opportunity to explore some of those issues. And, you know, eventually the piece turned into something slight, slightly different about the kind of broader dysfunction of, of the tennis industry as a, as a business. But my starting point was definitely that interest in how these kind of labor issues that play out in all sorts of workplaces have emerged, even in the kind of star-studded field of tennis. Yeah, for sure. So you went into it, I guess, with sort of the idea of looking at, I guess, lower-ranked players specifically as sort of being the equinox trainers of this uh of this ecosystem in tennis yeah exactly that there's this kind of glamorous perception of the sport that's belied by the kind of reality that's experienced day to day by the, the sort of the vast majority of, of people who, who play it professionally so you're a tennis fan and I, this obviously is an article primarily written i'm sure for a non-tennis audience and so there's a lot to cover and a lot to explain and a lot of different acronyms and a lot of different things that are confusing and, and more complicated than they probably should be uh, to have to explain what was how did you go about sort of trying to explain this stuff and I guess you probably I'm guessing also had to sort of get it clear in your own mind too exactly what everything was but how do you go about explaining this world to a, a, a sort of business centric audience I guess I would probably assume for for Bloomberg yeah so I mean I think I think the the acronyms are, are obviously a big issue and so an, an important thing was just sort of early in the piece kind of explaining what the tennis ecosystem looks like what the sort of seven major entities are and what they're different functions are. And then that kind of, you know, sets the stage for the sort of dysfunction among those different factions, which has, which has held the sport back. But, you know, even if the acronyms are complicated, I think the kind of basic problem, which is people being motivated by self-interest and, you know, failing to agree with each other, you know, men being reluctant to work with women. I mean, those are concepts that apply to all sorts of business failures across different industries and all sorts of societal failures. And so on some level, I don't think it's hard to explain to a general audience, you know, how those sorts of problems can, can affect a sports uh, development. Yeah. You had a word, I think that just, I think it was from De Villiers 
in, early in the piece uh, where it sort of describes it as a, I think in Bloomberg it appears as R-A-T-F dash dash dash, uh, which I think explains that it's a good thesis statement for the piece and sets the sort of tone of what people are, are wading into. When you, obviously you said you're a tennis fan, what sort of surprised you as you started to, if anything, about what you found from what people were saying or just from the structure itself as you started to unravel this and then re-ravel it into a, a piece? What re not a word, sorry. But what, you know, what, what surprised you as, as you were in your reporting phase? Yeah, I mean, I think as a, as a tennis fan, probably like, like most, most tennis fans, what I've always been most interested in is what's happening on the court and, you know, the great, the great rivalries between amazing players and, you know, who's the goat and that kind of thing. And I knew a lot less, even as a, as a, you know, relatively serious fan about the backroom politics of the sport. And I think I, I, I was surprised by the sheer nastiness of it and, and the way in which these, these sort of disputes have played out kind of over and over again across different issues and, and really held the sport back. And also the way in which those, the backroom politics can have an actual effect on how players perform on, on the court. I mean, we sort of saw that with Pospisil in, my, in Miami, you know? Yeah. He has a fight. He has a fight with Godenzi one one night, and then the next day he's yelling about it on on court. I mean, players, the players who are seriously engaged in these politics really live it day to day, um, and it and it affects how they play. I mean, I've talked to I talked to people who sort of speculated that the criticism that Djokovic got after he was part of the sort of ouster of Chris Kermode in in 2019, um, how that criticism sort of affected his play over the next few months. That it's really it's it's a distraction and. And yet players, you know, care about it in a way, modern players care about it in a way that players over the course of the sports history haven't necessarily in the same way. Yeah, no, Gimmelstab has come up with a lot. Sorry, Djokovic has come up with a lot, especially in 2019, I think was the year that Justin Gimmelstab was yeah. most embattled after his Halloween 2018 um, assault incident. And seeing Djokovic have to like deal with like a lot of continuing questions about this as he's like, on what became an eventual run to like the Wimbledon title. It's very unusual to have a top player who's so fairly willingly, you know, sidetracking themselves or dividing up their attention for all these other resources. And a lot of these player meetings and things like that happen days before Grand Slams and the tours come together. And so I know a lot of reporters are sort of thinking, wow, this is going to take a toll on him. And he wound up winning the tournament, Wimbledon 2019. But it was a remarkable feat of compartmentalization or, or multitasking or whatever you want to call it that he was able to keep his binders on, which, yeah, like you mentioned, Pospisil, uh, Pospisil was absolutely not able to do that uh, in, in Miami this year. And yeah, you talked about the, the ugliness of it and that sort of, that exchange, which is still relative, it's sort of, we're getting a secondhand account from Pospisil of getting yelled at, and then he's calling the uh, good NCL sorts of names on court as well. An hour and a half yesterday, the chair of ATP fucking screaming at me in a player meeting for trying to unite the players for an hour and a half. The leader of the ATP. What Get him out of here. What do we have to do with that? Uh... Fucking asshole. Come on, come on. Because, yeah, that, is that sort of rancor? Is that, that, was that sort of, that was, I think, probably passions boiling over on some level, but is that the sort of intensity you encountered when you spoke to people like Pospisil or people like Gidenzi or whatever else? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Pospisil's angry. I mean, I could, I, I spoke to him a couple of times over the course of the reporting for this piece and that was clear and, you know, it came through in the sound of his voice and I think in some of what we quoted him saying in the story as well. I mean, he talked about seeing these kind of suits just walking around, you know, making tons of money while players are struggling to keep things together. And it's just, it's a real sort of visceral 
anger. I mean, one of my favorite uh, pieces of reporting in the story is this email that Djokovic sent to members of the player council, literally on the eve of Wimbledon. He had a first round match the next morning and he sent at like something like 10 p.m. this 1400 word rant about how the ATP had had bungled its negotiations with Cosmos over ATP Cup and you know the you know whether they're going to have one world cup or two world cups and uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's testament to the sort of intensity of these kind of backroom political negotiations um, and, and how intensely players feel them. Yeah. And then Djokovic had some sort of sign off that was like, I forget the exact words, but like love and peace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Djokovic is trying to balance this like very, on one hand, like very Zen persona that he has in, in a sort of, you know, alternate philosophy, medicine type stuff he does with at the same time being a sort of rabble rouser populist you know, fighter for people on some level. And that those are things that, again, seem discordant on the outside, but that he, for the most part, synthesizes into being pretty coherent. Obviously, he gets, like, defaulted from the U.S. Open within after hitting a ball of anger that hit a Lions woman. But um, for the most part, yeah, he's able to keep things together and keep winning. One of the things I thought that I didn't, I hadn't really seen framed the way you did as cleanly in your piece, which I thought was really interesting, was early on talking about the media rights for the sport. And you say that tennis, basically, by a lot of measurements, can be considered about the fourth most popular sport in the world in terms of how many people say they're big fans of it, but that it only makes up uh, 1.3% of the total value of global sports TV and media rights is how it's phrased there. Getting passed by a lot of sports that are less popular, like hockey and golf along the way. Can you go into that and just why that chasm is, is so huge and how that represents a a failure on the sport on the part of tennis. Yeah, so I think that 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 gulf between the sport's popularity and the value of its media rights is really one of the centerpieces of kind of Godenzi's vision for how the ATP needs to change. I mean, those are numbers, you know, those weren't numbers that I sort of independently dug up. Those are numbers that the ATP is putting in kind of internal reports that it's circulating around to kind of illustrate the extent of the challenge. Um, and I think, you know, there are a few reasons for it. I mean, the, the key one is that the tennis landscape is so fractured that broadcasters are only paying for bits and pieces of it. And so if you could, you know, put the entirety of the WTA tour and the ATP tour together and even combine that with the media rights of the Grand Slams, it would be this incredibly valuable package that could be worth more um, than all of those things kind of cut into pieces on their own. Um, and then, you know, if you want to step further from that, further, further than that and, and, and united the governance of some of those separate entities, then you could also kind of eliminate certain redundancies in how the businesses operate. Um, and so you'd have, you know, more valuable media properties and um, kind, of, kind of lower costs and an overall sport that's, that's more profitable. And I think that's, that's the sort of vision that that Godenzi has. I mean, whether he'll be able to pull it off is, a, is another question, but, um, you know, that's how he's sort of framing the problem. Yeah. And just it, it, the sum of the parts would be so much greater than the parts. The sum is greater than the parts. And, and there's so many different parts in tennis, too. I mean, there's like, we sort of refer to it as like the seven kingdoms of tennis sometimes, which are the ATP, WTA, the four Grand Slams, and then ITF, which also controls some share stuff as well. And each of them is fiercely defensive and territorial often over their slice of the pie and afraid to cede any degree of autonomy to a, to a larger group that, that might, even if it, even if all the projections seem to show that it would be worthwhile in the end, yeah, there's just this, this stubbornness that uh, seems like it's, it's holding things back and seem, and, and I think I also really like how you phrased in the piece too, that said that this is not something 
that was designed. Let me see if I can find the exact passage to read. This is a quote from your piece. The structure isn't the result of careful long-term planning among tennis factions. It's a historical oddity that emerged from power struggle in the late 1980s. So, I mean, tennis has kind of had a haphazard shift from being an amateur sport to being a pro sport. Uh, it happened in 1968, basically, when it first started shifting at the Grand Slam level. And ever since, it really hasn't totally reset. It's been kind of changing on the fly and sort of fits and starts and not doing any massive overhaul. Um, and this kind of gets to the end of the piece, I guess, a little bit, skipping ahead. But like, how much do you think, I, I increasingly think that's what that's what's necessary, is for someone to somehow come in and through some sort of force, you know, unite everything, whether it's someone, you know, like a sort of Jeff Bezos kind of figure, like coming in and buying tennis, like just buying the whole sport and uniting it all. There's some like massive power, you know, land grab like that. Or cause I don't think it will happen sort of diplomatically at this point, um, organically. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what do you think in terms of do you think that is necessary? Do you think things can be fixed while staying this fragmented, and if not, I guess how do you see things possibly uniting? What are the paths towards greater unity? I think I think smart people in tennis governance all pretty much agree that if we had a blank slate and we're planning the structure of professional tennis right now, knowing what we know, it would not be structured anything like the way it's structured. But as you're as you're saying, the different factions and their kind of rival priorities mean that we're unlikely to reach some sort of diplomatic solution that solves all the problems. I think it's definitely possible for a good diplomat, and maybe Godenzi will turn out to be that guy to get tennis, you know, halfway there or three quarters there, you know. I, you know, I think we could we could see some sort of merger of the ATP and WTA in the relatively near future, you know, next 10, 15 years or so. What exactly that will look like is an, is an open question. But, you know, that would be a step forward in a lot of ways that would contribute to solving some of these problems. But I think you're right that, like, if you're looking for a kind of solution that can come in sort of one fell swoop and just, like, really transform the way tennis operates as a business, it would probably have to be some sort of land grab by, you know, I quote Bernie Eccleston basically saying that he wants to do that. I mean, he's 90 and it's not going to be doing yeah. that anytime soon. Or would that necessarily be a good idea for tennis? But um, somebody like that, I mean, you know, Larry yeah. Ellison at, at a certain point seemed like a good candidate to be that guy. Um, some some sort of some sort of mega billionaire coming in and just and just buying up the sport does seem like the sort of most promising solution if you're looking for a kind of um, sort of one-step fix. A lot of the ways you sort of frame the broken economics of the sport in your piece is by talking about how few players are able to make a comfortable living. Uh, in the current setup. I think you say only about 30 really making a comfortable living, maybe on the low side, a little bit that estimate, but it's it's not too far off. Um, and see how far, how not that far, especially compared to other sports. If you think about someone who's, I don't know, 200th in bat pro basketball, they are probably, you know, getting a great NBA salary somewhere and doing, doing fantastically well. And same for lots of other sports, whereas 200 in men's or women's tennis gets you losing money probably on on your on a year to year basis is that just is and there's sort of this back and forth in your piece too between whether that's just the capitalism of a sport that's naturally very star driven i mean one of the things also to point out in terms of that income gap is that tennis in the most recent forbes highest paid athlete list rankings had both the highest paid man in roger federer and the highest paid woman in naomi osaka so at the top it's very good for those individuals um, but then it and that includes endorsements and things like that that aren't part of the uh, overall structure. But then it drops off pretty quickly. How is that something that's just uh, inevitable in, in a sport that is really star driven? Because I do think it would take a, a pretty radical revamp of the sport to make it to a place where 
someone, you know, in your piece, name names, like some people like Tara Moore or Tyson Kwiatkowski or Noah Rubin would be considered sort of essential members of the tour because they're very much, they're not main draw direct players at Grand Slams. They're outside the top sort of 100-ish by ways. And so they're they're on the fringes and they're not part of the main event, really. Answer this however you want, so I'm not really making the question. But um, yeah. to me, it seems like it would take something pretty pretty drastic to make those players profitable in the sport, right? When they don't have audiences that they're drawing in to make them get a healthy living. I just don't know that the market right now really justifies them. I don't know. There's demand for, for players of that rank. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one way of thinking about this is that there are sort of two key complaints that players have. One is the size of the revenue pie that tennis generates. And one is the size of the slice of that pie that players receive. And so, you know, if you're Tara Moore or, or Noah Rubin and the pie expands drastically because there's a merger of the tours and the sport's generating so much more revenue or Jeff Bezos buys it and all of a sudden the TV rights are worth so much more, then, you know, potentially those gains in theory should trickle down to some of the lower ranked players. I mean, they're not going to suddenly be making $100 million a year like Roger Federer, but they're going to be, you know, making a much better living. They're going to be, you know, easily breaking even if not, you know, you know, bring home substantial profits every year. The other question is, you know, within the kind of current framework of tennis, you know, if the pie stayed the same size, do players deserve a bigger slice? And I think that, you know, there's a pretty convincing argument that that they do. I mean, they're what's driving the sport, what's bringing in the audience. And, you know, the percentage of Grand Slam revenue that, that goes to players is still strikes a lot of them is relatively low. And, you know, a group like the PTPA could potentially, you know, come in and bring a new level of negotiating power to, to, to the players that could kind of improve things on, on that front. And so both of those things could, could make things easier for the lower ranked players without actually like fundamentally, um, you know, like altering how like the sport is played. Like, cause that's sort of one of the other arguments, like, you know, maybe, maybe there are ways to market these lower ranked players by creating new types of tournaments with different formats that would bring in new fans. I mean, you know, I'm as emotionally invested in the five set format as probably most listeners to this podcast. Um, but, you know, a lot of these players, I think make, maybe make a reasonable point that, you know, tennis could do more to kind of experiment and see whether other formats gain adherence and and potentially kind of generate sort of new opportunities for these sorts of players. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a challenge. And, you know, I don't think there's a really a realistic scenario in which like, you know, the, the 150th ranked men's tennis player is making as much as the 150th best NBA player. But I think you could definitely see substantial improvements that that would uh, allow some of these players to kind of enjoy a more comfortable lifestyle and not essentially have to make a gamble every year when they decide whether yeah. to hire a coach. It's just interesting because I think that sort of socializing to use word maybe not totally applies, but getting it more comfortable for more people down the ranks is something that makes sense a lot in, in abstract to the workforce. I think as a general concept people can support. But then on a sort of granular level, level because everything in tennis is pretty granular to every tournament. I know recently the Rotterdam event, the ATP event, was asked uh, just in the sort of in the in the spirit of job creation during tough times if they could expand their draw from I think a thirty-two player draw to a forty-eight player draw, and they basically said no. That does not it doesn't help us. We don't want sixteen worse players in the draw to sort of dilute our field and make us have to put on more matches and give them all, you know, hospitality and food and whatever else expenses come with adding more players uh, that don't actually add that much benefit in terms of star star wattage to our event. That's just not something that appeals to us. We're not doing that. 
and and that is sort of I think you know pushback you would get too. I mean, I see that I think that in the Grand Slam events, I was thinking that in Australia, looking at for example like how many and I don't really talk about doubles in your piece, but um, how many of the players, especially in the men's doubles draw that go deep, are not playing singles, and how many separate people that is, especially in Australia where we had this very unique two-week quarantine situation for the players where the tournament was paying for all their hotel and all their food and everything during and their charter plane tickets and stuff during this time. And so a lot of tournaments will see that increase of their expenses and know from their own metrics and just from anecdotally that it's the star, it's the handful of stars that are ones you put on the poster that are selling tickets, that it's sort of people maybe in the abstract come and buy a ticket to the tennis event and don't really care who's playing, but also that the stars are the ones who, who in this very star-driven sport, very top-heavy sport, are the ones who are providing value. And so I think it's interesting. And I know Noah Rubin, who you talked to, is doing a, a lot of stuff to try to make... He's doing a lot of work. That's, I think it's interesting in terms of the behind-the-racket stuff and trying to make lowering players more interesting and tell their stories and make them more appealing themselves. And that's relatively innovative what he's doing. I don't think many people have really shown that sort of spotlight on the yep. lower ranks and made them their own and tried to make them their own interesting characters as well. Cause I think they really can get lost in the, in the shadows. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, there's on some level, this is also kind of a failure of marketing and somebody like yeah. is like sort of stepping in to provide that. I mean, the truth is that like most, a lot of Americans, you know, watching a tennis match who aren't like super invested in the sport probably aren't going to be able to tell the difference between, you know, how good the 75th person in the world is compared to the 125th ranked person. And so, but there's a huge, huge gap between how well those two players are paid. And so, you know, maybe, maybe the sport can do a better job, you know, investing in the stories of those of players in that range in the ranking and kind of turning them into, you know, mini celebrities who fans get invested in and that type of thing, you know, yeah. there's, there's definitely opportunity to do that. And, and I agree. I mean, it's, um, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be easy. And, you know, uh, I don't think there's ever a scenario where those players are going to be making huge amounts of money, but there seems like there's certainly kind of space for the sport to do more. Yeah. And I think there's also space for obviously what Noah's doing in terms of his sort of entrepreneurship on that and his, his his drive on that is is pretty unique but i also think there's probably room for other players to do more things to sort of either whether it's selling themselves or telling their own stories or even just to sort of push the sport that's one thing that i sort of have felt more recently in, in tennis is that a lot of the players really aren't doing much to sort of make tennis you know capital t tennis like a, a more popular product and increase they're all this is a long story in tennis. Tennis players are very self-focused and self-centered because their earning depends all on their own success. And they, they see everything else often as a distraction that can be a detriment to their, their earnings and their careers and their goals and things like that. Um, but yeah, I don't, and I, I thought this when I was in this Miami tournament where so many of the top guys pulled out because the prize money went down and uh, it wasn't, it was sort of a, a little bit of a standalone event geographically with uh, Indy Wells not happening this year, so it wasn't a back-to-back Masters. So people who weren't going to play Acapulco, let's say, uh, didn't make a lot of geographic sense just across the ocean just for one tournament, even if it is a big tournament. I was sort of thinking, like, these guys aren't showing a lot of support to Miami, which was a tournament that had a rough 2020, was one of the tournaments they had to cancel on the shortest notice uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic setting in, um, and surely lost a lot of money, and there didn't seem to be a lot of loyalty, which I know is sort of a... Uh, word that in terms of you know thinking about employees and labor and stuff like that it's not a lo- loyalty toward employers or corporations is probably not a concept that a lot of people are 
warm towards, but it did, it did strike me uh, as these withdrawals were happening. Like, wow, these guys are sort of leaving Miami hanging after Miami's given them a lot of money over the years. Yeah. And I mean, again, again like the, like the basic thing that almost is so obvious that, you know, sometimes people forget to, to just like state it is that like, yeah, it's an individual sport. And like all of these issues are exacerbated by the fact that the like spear whole spirit of the sport is so individualistic. I mean, just on kind of a logistical level, if you're trying to do what Pospisil and Djokovic are doing and, you know, unite players into this one group, just like getting them all in the same room, isn't that easy, you know, um, you know, and, 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 and reckoning with the different priorities of what are essentially, you know, 200 independent businesses um, and trying, I mean, cause that's the thing. I mean, we talk about seven faction, but in a way each player is their own kind of business faction within this whole yeah. system. So it just makes it incredibly difficult. Yeah, and it's very zero. A tournament is very zero sum. You know, I win because somebody else loses each round, and and so, yeah, it's definitely not a world that's really built for cooperation in that way. Uh, talking about Pospisil and and Djokovic and the PTPA, uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's, especially with your experience doing other sorts of you know labor stories about the PTPA and and what it's trying to. Are you clear on its uh, its intentions? or its goals. I, Tara, Tara Moore had a, had a quote, or you sort of paraphrased part of the quote too, but she said that women are a lot more cautious than men. And yeah, they want to know the structure before they sign up for an organization, which to me seems like a pretty basic thing. I find it kind of amazing that all these guys are signing up for PTPA when it is so vague and so amorphous so far. Um, but I think that also shows the desire for something. I think what they, I think they understand PTPA to be not ATP and that immediately appeals to them. I don't think it's a problem for the ATP. I'm curious what you think, what you make of PTPA, if it is really just a union and sort of non-union disguise for now, if it is something less than a union, something different totally, what, what, what do you make, how do you size up PTPA? So I think a lot of, a lot of the PTPA's problem actually boils down to something I saw you tweet the other day, which is that they're like external communication is not good. Yeah, it's awful. I actually, I actually think that like the PTPA, like the like internally, the vision for what the PTPA is going to be is actually clearer than what most people perceive it to be because they've just done a bad job kind of conveying that. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of confusion at first. Like when they say they're breaking away from the ATP, does that mean they're going to be their own tour? You know, that's but that's never what these guys wanted wanted to do. Um, but you know, when I you know, Pospisil's vision of it is basically you know, an entity that eventually replaces the player council within the ATP, that, play, that that the ATP stops being a partnership between management and labor and becomes just management yeah. and PTPA is labor and, base, and and negotiates with the ATP and with the Grand Slams and that, you know, that will allow them to more effectively push for change than in the partnership. Now, you know, whether that is actually the case is like a complicated question. And right. a lot of the people who were involved in the original formation of the ATP point out that that was kind of the what the setup looked like in the eighties and, you know, players ultimately decided that it would be better to kind of have a, have the proverbial seat at the table, but you know, it's not, so it's not entirely clear how that'll, that'll play out. I think, you know, the other, the, the other, when people, when people talk about whether the PTPA is actually a union, I think what they're really asking is, can this group boycott? 
Like, like yeah. that's the sort of fundamental thing. And the PTP has also done a bad job communicating on that in a lot of ways. I, mean, I didn't get into this in the story, but when I talked to Pospisil about the prospect of a boycott, he was very clear and he's been clear about this with other reporters as well. Yes, like that would be the source of our leverage, the th potential threat of a boycott. We don't want to do it, but that's how we would get something done. But then when I went to, uh, to Norton Rose, which is the law firm that the PTPA is working with, they said, oh, no, we have no intention of boycotting. So, you know, it's it's that sort of disconnect, which is problematic for them, I think. Um, it, seems like the, it seems like a disconnect and also that they're trying to have it both ways. Yes. Too. They're trying to be non-threatening, but also threatening. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, of course, of course, the boycott, a boycott needs to be a threat. I mean, they would have That's no the leverage. Yeah, of course. Yeah. From the source of their, of, of their power. But, you know, I think a lot will depend on their ability to get more players involved than are currently involved. I mean, you know, they had that photo shoot on, on, on Grandstand, which like sort of looked like a good showing, but if you actually kind of like break down like who was there and who wasn't there, you know, it's not, it's probably not enough of the top players on the tour for them to like really be powerful. I mean, when Federer, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray got together in 2012 and went to the Grand Slams and negotiated, they were incredibly powerful. And there may not have been an explicit boycott threat, but it was implicit enough that like tournaments listened. And so that's, that's proof of concept really for the PTPA in a lot of ways. It's just, you know, now the organization has to figure out how to get all these players together. I, you know, I, I sort of think that we should all kind of reserve judgment on them for a few months because they are working behind the scenes to kind of clarify what the structure will be, what role the women will have, and, you know, are apparently talking to people outside of tennis to come on board as sort of executives that would run it day to day. And Pospisil has promised me that there'll be some sort of grand reveal in the next few months. And presumably that will also be a PR moment that they use to try to recruit more players. And I think once that plays out, we'll get a better sense of whether they have uh, real staying power. And of course, and, you know, I just mentioned the issue of collaboration with the women. I mean, that was another kind of early communications failure for the PTPA. They had this photo of like 50 guys standing on the court, no women. And it was, it was a terrible look and was rightly criticized by a lot of people. When in actual fact, behind the scenes, the goal of the organizers has always been to work with the women because that would increase the group's leverage. You know, there's no strategic reason for them not to want to work with the women. And Pospisil was working on that behind the scenes, even when that photo shoot happened. So it's like, again, it's like they sort of let themselves down in terms of self-presentation, even when they were actually doing a lot of constructive things behind the scenes. So it's, it's messy, it's complicated. There's probably no way it couldn't be those things, but uh, I think we gotta we gotta wait and see for now. That's sort of yeah. You mentioned my tweet, and that is I do actually think should be more of a priority, even if it does seem like window dressing. Maybe to some people who are on the inside, the communication side of PTPA, just the messaging and sort of winning hearts and minds outside of the locker room, even potentially with doing things that like yeah, like saying men and women coming together, you know, from these separate organizations would have been such a PR win in in 2020 when they when they launched this group just in terms of the, the social climate of the day um and so to miss that that opportunity i think costs them a lot more than they probably probably realize and also raises questions too because you see in the piece like the sort of latent uh machismo or whatever people call it from the from the men's locker room not wanting to interact with women and if what they really if you know Djokovic has said things in the past that are sort of have been taken as being anti-equal pay or, or, or thinking that men deserve a bigger share of the pie, basically. And so when you have an all men's 
group, you know, coalesce, who were they against at that point when they're all men? It would seem like women were a natural sort of uh, possible adversary. It's probably too strong a word, but, you know, a natural sort of opponent for them to see in terms of the market, in terms of labor. So, yeah. So, and and just, right, on whether or not they want to be a union and, and boycott or not, too, I think it's also something very much worth clarifying and something that I would want to know if I was a player, uh, maybe not Tara Moore, but I would want to know if I was signing up for an, a group, like, are we trying to, are we a union? Are we going to, are you going to make me pull out of the grandstand event if we decide to strike or whatever or what am i exactly getting getting on board for and i and i do think that it's possible that a more adversarial relationship between you know more traditional employer and union relationship could have benefits for both sides and also possible drawbacks that the, the guys don't see especially i was thinking thinking recently there's been a lot of different cases mostly minor but some bigger ones of various different discipline issues and misconduct things among the men's players that have gone pretty much completely unpunished and if there was a more formal adversarial relationship where the ATP wasn't feeling like it had to look out for the interests of you know each individual employee as a as a in their mission statement they would you know ban a Sam Query for, you know, absconding from his, you know, required quarantine in, in St. Petersburg, Russia, you know, in a charter plane across the border, or they would, you know, other people, you know, Demir Jumer, who's, you know, threatening line judges or chair empires, whatever else, other things, they the players actually might see a lot more heat and a lot more accountability mm-hmm. uh, if they were treated like normal employees under a normal sort of CBA. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, the one thing I've learned from covering these sorts of labor disputes and other types of workplaces is also that these these divisions, of, you know, about you know the benefits and drawbacks are like totally normal, and that you know this uh, this isn't just like you know tennis being dysfunctional as tennis is always dysfunctional. You know that these sorts of debates take a long time to kind of hash out, and you know they're often super intense divisions over kind of the best way to organize these groups and that and that sort of thing. Yeah. I want, to, I want to ask you about uh, Andrea, Andrea Gadenzi, who you spoke to for this piece, who I have not actually met because I don't think he was in Australia, which is the one tournament during his tenure that I was able to travel to in 2020 uh, before everything got got nuts. He was sort of he was brought in to replace Chris Kermode, and it seemed like Kermode, by a lot of metrics, had been a very successful you know uh, CEO for the ATP. Their their money was going up. They had the successful next gen promotions, a bunch of different things. It seemingly I've. I thought there was a case at the time he was ousted that he could have been potentially seen as like the most successful of any of the seven chiefs of their various mm-hmm. seven kingdoms, as he called it. Um, but he got ousted in what seemed to be partially a power grab by Justin Gimmelstab, but also a, sort of made a victim, if you want to call him that, of frustrations with the structure. And it wasn't really about Kermode per se and what he was doing. It was more, we don't like this, this split share and you're too loyal to the tournaments and not enough to us. And just the division of sort of, loyalties in this in this structure so I'm, I'm curious i guess what you make what you made of of god um in this i'm talking to him and if, if he's the right sort of guy for this this moment and this challenge because he doesn't seem to in it very early he doesn't seem to have a lot of the faith of certainly of the ptpa side of the movement yeah no i think yeah you're right about kermode i mean you know on by a lot of metrics he was a huge success but you know i think that there was really a sense that he he was running the atp at the best possible time and that like he should have done even better. You know, it was good, but it should have been great. Was which you know is like is is harsh, but you know that's that's I, I guess the sort of standard that you know leaders are sometimes held to. And um, you know, I think there was also some sort of I think there was also frustration with how he handled the ATP Cup Davis Cup negotiations. Um, 
and you know, like, you know, to some degree, this, this is, you know, an individual's fault. To some degree, it's just a function of how sort of screwed up the system is to begin with. But um, yeah, I was, I was impressed with Gaudenzi. I mean, I think he has done, you know, part of what's important here, which he's, which is he's diagnosed what the core problems in the sport are. And he's done that pretty clearly. And he's outlined some like pretty creative solutions that were they to be enacted, I think would probably make a big difference. Um, you know, the prize money formula, for example, I mean, it's not like a new concept, but he's, you know, you know, thinking about how to do it and expanding it to more tournaments. And conceivably, if he pulled that off, then you might actually escape from this like cycle of endless negotiations over, over money because player compensation would be linked to revenue growth at tournaments. And that would just kind of like proceed in a more straightforward way so that could be that could be a big change i mean he's also like really banging the drum on uniting the different governing bodies um and you know it matters that somebody in a kind of public facing position in tennis is doing that um it you know it makes it makes a big difference and just in terms of kind of setting the tone for the sport so all those things are good you know he's also obviously taken over at the worst possible time i mean I think that there's a lot of fair criticism of how he's handled the pandemic. You know, he probably should have taken a pay cut earlier, like that sort of stuff. Um, you know, the ATP's communications with players has been flawed at various points. Um, but, you know, I think every major institution in every aspect of life has failed in some way. And so it would be harsh to kind of dismiss him based on his on his kind of missteps during during the pandemic. But, you know, again, everything comes down to whether he actually has the political and diplomatic skills to like pull off these ambitious changes. And I think that's something we just don't know yet. And what's interesting is we'll probably start finding out pretty soon because, you know, the ATP board is scheduled to vote on his kind of set of plans, whether to sort of adopt them before Wimbledon. And, you know, if he loses that vote, you know, that would seem to be a very bad sign for the rest of his tenure as chairman. So I think we'll, we'll know, we'll know pretty, pretty soon how that's going. You mentioned, we've talked about most of the sort of player unrest issues as being a men's tennis issue, which they mostly are. There doesn't seem to be from talking to players and even just from listening on social media, whatever, the women are not as vocally unhappy and just, I think are actively more happy with their governance and their tour. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that the WTA which has a similar structure as the ATP. Why do you think it's been so much more stable uh, of recent than the men's side? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I I think that perhaps you know part of it comes down to comes down to the fact that that the that a lot of the women are sort of united in wanting to kind of mend the various ways that they've been mistreated by the tennis establishment over the years. I mean, mm-hmm. equal prize money is one you know, like, I think women were like mostly united for a long time in wanting to merge the tours because it would clearly benefit the WTA in a whole variety of ways. And, and that the kind of unity around those sorts of shared goals has probably prevented some of the kind of divisions that have, have caused issues on the men's tour. You know, I mean, part of it also is like, you know, a bunch of like, you know, testosterone fueled people, you know, competing to see more powerful, you know, that tends to be something that in men's organizations is more problem. Um, and, and yes, I think that that sort of basically kind of explains the inter- the difference, which is not to say that these divisions don't exist on the women's tour at all. I mean, you know, Tara, a, a sort of anecdote I have in the story from, from, from Tara Moore is that she was shut out of these WTA player meetings early in the pandemic where 
um, sort of important scheduling updates were being discussed, not only for WTA tournaments, but also for ITF tournaments that yeah. non-WTA members were competing in. And so there's this sense of things are already hard enough and now you're giving certain players more information so they know which surfaces to train on, when to start training, when to rest. And it's just it just puts a lot of players at a disadvantage. So those same sorts of fault lines still exist among the kind of different factions. For sure. Looking forward, you mentioned the, the vote coming up on Gunnensi's proposals before Wimbledon. Any other things, I guess, that people should keep an eye on as, as this world moves forward? I guess there possibly could still be more fallout from the possible that NC blow up, which happened right after your piece came out, I guess, which I'm sure you would have loved to have that in there in a lot of ways to sort of just show how bad things had gotten. Um, Cause it really was sort of a, Whoa, this is, you know, this guy's angry moment. Yeah. What else should people look forward or look for as they, as they see what the trends are and, and, and what, where things are, are moving. Yeah. I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what the PTPA does, whether there's some like big announcement soon about how they're going to be structured and who they're going to be working with. It'll also be interesting just to see the next uh, tournament where both Djokovic and Pospisil are present. I mean, it, like people being physically present actually really matters in terms of like how much the negotiations progress and how much they, and how much they don't. And so, you know, Djokovic wasn't at Miami. They were both, they were both in, in, Melbourne, but you know, like the quarantine conditions were such that I think it was always unlikely there was going to be like major organizing activity. But as we hopefully like move into a stage of pan of the pandemic where like we can behave more normally and the um, the rules aren't quite as strict, we might start seeing kind of more sort of player gatherings and kind of activism sort of emerging in those different ways, which will be which will be interesting to see. Um, and you know what what Djokovic says publicly. I mean, he he was supportive of Pospisil after the after the blow up in Miami. But um, you know, it'll be curious to see if he kind of keeps sort of banging the drum on this as intensely as Pospisil has done over the past few months. I would expect him to. I mean, I, I think that Djokovic Djokovic seems very committed to this and having it be part of his his legacy. And I think that he's sort of and this is bigger picture stuff on Djokovic. But I don't think he's found himself being as you know loved outside of the locker room as he as he wants to be and so i think he's finding validation in this other sort of more antagonistic in a lot of ways crusade within the sport that i think he's finding a lot of support for from the rank and file players and the, you know the guys who are on the court and that photo at the u.s open i think he finds a lot of uh yeah a lot of validation a lot of fulfillment in yeah. that no, and he gets a bad rap. I mean, this is not an original thought at all, but I, I really, it's hard to think of another athlete who's as good as he is, but as unloved as he is. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty striking. And, you know, it's, it's almost sort of in line with that sort of mis reputational misfortune that like even his efforts to be like the Robin Hood of tennis have sort of backfired in certain ways. And he's now in the middle of a kind of another political war where, you know, people are accusing him of basically just trying to pull off a power grab when yeah. in reality, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, he does genuinely care about the fates of these lower ranked players. Last thing, I guess I probably should ask this earlier, but to circle back to it, um, in terms of PTBA, and we were talking about them having sort of trying to have it both ways in a lot of ways in their early uh, designs or how they're explaining their designs. Is it a problem? Is it is it going to really hurt the, the PTPA cause how amorphous they're being and how not clear they're being with everything? Or is that something that's okay in a sort of nascent phases of an organization, even if it is at this point seven months since their public launch and we still 
really don't know much. They have never put out a press release. They don't have a, you know, basic things like a Twitter account or, you know, other stuff that could sort of, they could coalesce around a point to here's what we think, here's who we are, where we are. It all still is kind of just kind of like a hashtag movement in a lot of yeah. ways. Well, I think one of the, one of the goals of the public launch was to just sort of gauge interest. And again, this is maybe a communications failure. They sort of made it sound like they were announcing that this group exists and was going to start working when really, when really what they were announcing was like, look, this is a concept that we've come up with and here are the players who are committed to it. And like, you'll hear more soon. So, I mean, it could, it certainly could hurt them. I mean, you know, there are probably, there are probably players who have, have decided and just won't change their minds that they don't want to be part of the PTPA because of whatever mistakes uh, Djokovic and Pospisil have made in the rollout. But, you know, they're also, they've also gotten a ton of publicity, you know, everybody in tennis knows, knows what they are and has an opinion on them. And I think they'll, they'll have another opportunity, especially once the pandemic ends and people just sort of start contemplating the long-term future in a different kind of way. They'll have an opportunity to sort of like rebrand themselves. Yeah. And, and that's what, and that's what Pospisil says they're getting ready to do. And we'll see, you know, if that actually happens and how effective they are at pulling it off. But, you know, if they announce a slate of, you know, like really impressive board members from different industries who are like exactly the type of kind of business-minded non-tennis people that some think, some people think should be running the ETP itself, like, you know, I think that'll do a lot for them. Yeah. And like you said, the pandemic, I think, has been a factor in, in slowing or, or stanching, you know, it's, it's hard to, to meet and to, and to gain momentum when you're doing everything over WhatsApp groups and not able to get people in a room and things just happen much faster in those sorts of meetings. And I also don't know how many meetings they're having in terms of if they're having like, you know, cattle call, Zoom calls with players. It doesn't seem like they really are doing too much of that. It seems like it's still my, relatively fragmented. They're not. My understanding, yeah. basically, the recruitment has been more or less frozen for the past few months as they've tried to work out behind the scenes, like what the structure of the group will be and that kind of thing. But they're planning this new push. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know that's what that's what Pospisil said when I spoke with him, and um, and and you know, I think all the signs point to you know that's what they're what they're working on. Yeah, and I, it'll be interesting to see how they. As if they, if and when they do clarify their positions, how that affects how people are gung ho for them or not. Because, you know, I think I, my feeling when it launched in around the U.S. Open was this: they were sort of Pospisil and Djokovic were presenting it as the answer to anything, any complaint you have with the ATP. The answer was going to be join PTPA. Whether it's you know don't like the food in the in the you know dining hall of the tournament PTPA. You know you want more prize money PTPA. You want the women to get less PTPA. You want the women to come in PTPA. Like everything was just sort of a cure-all from them. And yeah, we'll see how that actually, once they actually have to put something down in writing, how much they can, and maybe they will just keep it vague in writing too forever. But um, yeah, we'll see how that, how it holds up. David, thank you very much for your time here. Uh, any other tennis things you're working on in the future? It was a joy to have you drop into the sport. Yeah, not this, this, this is probably a, I mean, I hope not a one-time thing, but uh you know, I'm, I'm grateful to my day-to-day uh, -day editors for indulging me and allowing me to do this, given that it has zero to do with uh, federal courts in Washington. But uh, I hope to do more tennis reporting in the future. But in the meantime, you know, I'll read what you and everyone else are working on. Okay, cool. Will do. All right. Well, thank you very much, David. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. So thank you very much to David Yaffe Bellany of Bloomberg News for taking the time to write that article and to come on the podcast to discuss it. Hopefully you all found it as insightful and enlightening as I hope you did. And thank you all for listening as always. And thank you for your support of NCR as always as well, especially on our Patreon. We have one new Patreon backer 
to thank since our last show. That is Dominic Dimech from Australia. So thank you to Dominic. And thank you to our Slam Champ backers. We thank every episode. Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Jean Simeon, James Hindle, Audrey Wellens, Antonio Maycumber, and Anna Valinder, and our GOAT backers, Mike Nicole Copeland, Pam Shriver, Chris Bishop, and J.O.D. Speaking of Patreon, Courtney and I are doing a Patreon-only mailbag show recording next week. If you're interested in having your questions answered, we'll answer every question we get, we hope, uh, from any of our Patreon backers there. So you can send go to the post on Patreon if you're one of our Patreon backers, uh, or, or you can email them to us. Only Patreon backers will be able to listen. So if you want to join that flock, uh, you can do so, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining for that. I think that's about it. Hope you're all enjoying Miami. Hopefully I have another show on Miami for you soon. Bye, guys. What can I say? I can't make her stay. When I know that she's so far above, how could she ever love someone like me? She's out of reach. Here in the dark, inside the hole in my heart, I'm fighting over.